Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez brings us a piece on the shifting Latino electorate as we approach the 2022 election. After that, assistant editor Jackie Valley and Joey sit down with two Carson City residents who headed to Poland and Ukraine to help with the growing refugee crisis as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. At the end of the show, reporter Sean Galanka and you, Jacob, talk about election changes that are being proposed and, in some cases, adopted in Nevada counties. Also, a reminder that if you write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen and let me know, you'll be in the running to win some free Indie Matters merch, like a tote bag or a t-shirt or a mug. As we all know, we are in a midterm election year, and in Nevada, the Latino electorate could make a big difference in key races, especially for high-profile Democrats like Governor Steve Sisolak and Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Latino voters in the state and across the country have shaken up the status quo in the last few election cycles, casting doubt on long-standing narratives that they'll reliably back Democrats, who have counted on Latinos to win in past elections. We'll hear more from reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, who worked on a deep dive about Latino voters in Nevada ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Latino voters in Nevada are a significant political force, representing nearly 20% of the state's electorate, with more than 400,000 eligible voters. While Latinos are often lumped together as a voting bloc, the group is extremely diverse. That complexity shines through in the Latino community's political preferences and expectations, which are evolving as the electorate grows both in Nevada and across the U.S. Esmeralda Villeda, born and raised in Las Vegas, has been politically engaged from a young age, going back to her high school years when she was the Hispanic Student Union president at Rancho High School. But now 28, her political values have evolved. She changed her voter registration to nonpartisan a few years ago, preferring to back candidates based on policy, not party. I make a conscious effort to educate myself and and back up and support um, candidates that that do the same, right? That Mm -hmm. make decisions with scientific facts and not just, oh, this is what the people want or, oh, this is what social media wants. Ahead of this year's election, Democrats are reevaluating their messaging and approach to Latinos, while Republicans are doubling down on strategies that appeared successful in 2020. 63% of Latinos voted for President Joe Biden, down from 71% of Latinos who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Biden won Nevada in 2020, but the Democratic ticket lost ground between the election cycles. Will those margins continue to shrink? Will Latino voters help propel a red wave in Nevada? Those are the questions vexing election analysts and concerning Democratic campaigns. I think the big message for 2022, uh, to Democrats in particular, is it's time to deliver. It's not time (laughs) to play around. It's time to deliver and have real conversations with the Latino community. That was Jessica Padron, the Civic Engagement Director for Make the Road Nevada, a left-leaning advocacy organization focused on the immigrant community. She described political parties' attempts to engage Latino voters as half-hearted attempts, with tokenizing photo exchanges that often involve taco trucks and mariachi bands. 
I get sick and tired of what many politicos do, which I consider quote-unquote mariachi politics. The lead gets buried when we talk about Latino vote is like, you know, not all Latinos are extremely progressive in the first place. Republicans are focusing their messaging to Latinos on the economy and jobs, religious and conservative values, and identifying Democrats as socialist or communist. That can stoke fears among immigrants from countries like Cuba or Venezuela fleeing communist governments. Democrats are continuing to back immigration reform, though meaningful efforts for change on the federal level have consistently failed. But Nevada Democrats have another strong advantage, which is the mobilizing force of the Culinary Workers Union which represents 60,000 casino and hospitality workers, mostly in the Las Vegas area. Ted Papageorge, secretary-treasurer of the union, said he's not worried about turning out Latinos this cycle. We're going to do what we do, and uh, we plan to do it in a bigger way uh, than we ever have this year. Papageorge said Democrats' advantage lies in focusing on kitchen table issues like health care, job security, and benefits. Latino voters in Nevada have a broad political range. Patricia Flores said she has always been a Republican, following in her parents' footsteps because the party's values align closely to hers as a Latina. She spoke to the Nevada Independent at a Latinos for Laxalt event promoting Adam Laxalt, who is running against Democrat incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the nation's first Latina senator. Maria Elena Castro, on the other hand, is a staunch Democrat and member of the politically powerful Culinary Union. She expressed shock that at least one Latina candidate, Carolina Serrano, is running for a congressional seat as a Republican. Wow. I will say we will not support them. Even though you are Latina, you have to understand maybe their reach. Maybe they don't understand the struggle that we have as a as an immigrant. If I have them in front of me, I will say, I will say... David DeMore is a professor and chair of UNLV's political science department. He said there's still room to grow the Latino electorate in Nevada, which has a lower voter participation rate compared to other states. In a state with a transient population and growing number of nonpartisan voters, DeMore said the electorate has the potential to shift significantly every two to four years. The big question always about Nevada is what's the electorate going to look like this year, um, right? Because you have so many new people in here. You have pretty, still pretty transient population. Now you have all these rise of these nonpartisan voters. It's just almost like you're starting over every two, or, two to four years. If you want to read more of Jasmine's reporting, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Nevada political operative John Staub and his wife Lydia Karasinska left their home in Carson City to head to the Polish-Ukrainian border to help shuttle refugees from Ukraine to safety as the Russian attacks continue. They were over there with an organization called the Center for the Humanitarian Aid of Shigenia and have also started their own nonprofit called Ukrainian Refugee Rescue. Assistant editor Jackie Valley and I sat down with them to talk about their nonprofit and their time helping Ukrainian refugees. Well, 
Well, I'm here with John Stav and Lydia Karasinska, and also assistant editor Jackie Valley. And we're talking to you guys today about heading over to Poland and the Ukraine and, and, and helping out. You guys started a nonprofit to help out. So tell me a little bit about the nonprofit before we, before we jump into anything else. Well, thank you so much, Joey and Jackie, for having us. Well, we started Ukrainian Refugee Rescue to continue our efforts. We got on the Polish border on the 10th day of the war, and we went to Ukraine on this our second day there, and then stayed there almost the entire time. And UkrainianRefugeeRescue.com is our nonprofit. Uh, if you Google it, you'll never find it, because unfortunately those words are pretty hot right now. We are focused on uh, shuttling refugees safely across the Ukrainian side of the border. And so now it is very built up on the Polish side. As soon as refugees walk, they're greeted by Polish military who take their bags, carry their bags for them. Although we do have volunteers uh, who do that for elderly and whatnot already. But they come across the border and uh, are greeted by people with hot tea and food and blankets, coats, everything you could want. One of our main focuses was helping the Ukrainian side. The lines can last for days at times. And so we were taking supplies on the Polish side and running it up to the Ukrainian side to where it was needed. I wanted to ask uh, about your decision to even go over there and make that long journey from Nevada to Poland. What motivated you to do so on such a short time frame? I'm a Polish native. I was born and raised in Krakow, which is two and a half hours away from the border. So it was a personal decision and also this need to help to be there right away because um as you know the polish history during the world war ii it's very similar to what's happening right now in ukraine so as a native i just felt like that we have to come and help in person yeah we just felt it strongly in our bones that we had to go and help during the worst refugee crisis since world war ii the largest war since world war ii happening right next to lydia's hometown and she went to a jesuit university there and has lots of Ukrainian friends who are there, um, who are still there. So the organization that you guys went over with is called the Center for the Humanitarian Aid of Shigenya. Tell me a little bit more about that. They're doing incredible yeoman's work, and they have a long strategic vision to help refugees in their new reality in Poland. They and us believe that this is going to drag on for years, unfortunately, and so they're focused on long-term longevity of the refugees. And they've already had discussions with Google startups and then organizations that focus on legal and and psychologist aid. So they're going to be focused on helping families with psychological work, finding a job, writing a resume, learning the language, as well as navigating all the legal situation of the refugee status. I can only imagine it must have been so overwhelming, both as a volunteer trying to help, and then, of course, for the refugees coming to a new country, leaving their homes, families in midst of a war. Can you give us a little insight on an average day there? Like, What did your days look like while there? Well, we did work the night shifts because that was the that was the biggest need. It chopped down to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. People are bundled for winter. They're in these days long line to get through on these buses. And then someone just decides like enough, let's walk across. And then they get really sweaty and then they stop and they stand in line, which can also last for a day. And when it drops down to 15 degrees Fahrenheit at night, that's the real danger for kids and the elderly for sure. So we on American time decided that you know, working night shifts was, was the best. So were you bringing people like blankets when they were in line or were you just like helping process them as they were trying and you were um, in the Ukraine when this was happening, right? 
Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we we got shopping carts and uh, took shopping carts full of supplies of propane heaters, coats, blankets, mm-hmm. space blankets, hot tea, and we were just running them up to the border. Started just grabbing volunteers. Are you comfortable going in, into Ukraine? Are you comfortable? And posting them, we built out stations and we eventually built out fires, fire pits uh, along these stations in order to support folks who are standing in line. As I call it no man's land, but the space in between uh, the two checkpoints, very long, very long line there. Uh, so we have people supporting them as well as throughout the whole side on Ukraine. Did you have much of a chance to talk with these families? And if so, what were the, what were they telling you? There is a, a very hard language barrier. The Ukrainians and Polish folks, they can understand about 10 or 15% of each other. So they can communicate a little bit. Some people can understand English a little bit. About one third of the refugees were Russian speaking. Many times, you don't necessarily need words sometimes to understand when you see how people are thankful. They just rub your hands and give you hugs. And you can just see on their faces like how thankful they can be for what are we doing for them? Learn my Ukrainian phrases like, like, are you cold? Do you need a hat? Do you need a coat? That type of stuff. Would you like hot tea? And yeah, and then there's sometimes we play daisy chain of, of language. So like someone who speaks French has to speak to someone who speaks French and Polish and then speaks a little bit of English to speak to someone who speaks Russian. So there's definitely some of that going on. This one girl that we recruited as we were going to the border like second time. One night I, I asked her like if she if she would be willing to come to help us on the other side. She's from Latvia and I remember when the first time she saw this huge line in, the, in between and she just hugged me and just, we both started crying because it's a bit quite emotional. It is for everybody that you see, everybody that sees what's happening there. I've never experienced so much human sorrow in my life and not a, not ashamed to admit that I cried probably over 20 times. But what really takes you over the edge is uh, the human-to-human interactions where you help an individual family. Very, very sad and tragic conflict. It can be so difficult to sort of understand the depths of what's happening there on an emotional level when we're just getting sound bites from the news or just occasional video clips. So what would you like listeners here in America and in Nevada to know about what's happening over there? That this isn't some far-flung conflict. If we allow this nation-state versus nation-state, empire-imperialistic military power grabs, it's going to keep happening until a NATO state is invaded and uh, a larger conflict sparks off, such as a world war. So that's why this conflict matters. Are there particular moments that will always stick with you? Definitely. It's like this one lady from Kharkiv that I helped evacuate. Some, some Ukrainian guys took her to the border and she was wounded by shelling of a residential area and had concrete rebar pierced through her abdomen. She had surgeries and everything and the pain medicine. And, and I, uh, you know, drove her through the border, which took five hours, and that's with me driving very aggressively and telling every single border guard what the deal was, and um, still took five hours to get through, but got her through the other side and got her to a hospital, and then we helped uh, her sister and her sister's kids find some housing in Poland and so they can help look after her, and you know, I'll, I'll always remember her, and as well as uh, lots of other folks that we directly helped at a one-on-one level like that. I helped uh, with one lady that had a Sphinx cat. 
and they don't have hair. <laughs> it was really cold night. So like I tried to wrap it in a baby blanket and then we put it back on a, on a cage. Yes, because yeah. it was shivering. So uh, while it was trying to bite me too, but <laughs> I was not really a concern at the moment, but yes. Did you ever feel in danger while you were over there from the war itself? No, they're certainly, they're vigilant of any type of saboteurs or spine or anything like that. But we dressed in our volunteer attire, very, very prevalent. And everyone knew what we were doing and we knew all the border guards by, you know, our 19th time crossing. When we were living over there, we only crossed if we needed to. But uh, Yakarov Military Base or Military Training Center was hit. That was about eight miles or so, I think, from where we were. And yeah, I mean, it, I don't think we were ever really in danger, though, if you didn't. No. And that, as you are in a situation like that, it's not exactly what do you think at the time about. I, it didn't actually cross my mind at the moment. <laughs> What's the mood like in Poland on that side of the border? So there is a huge movement in all the biggest cities. That's another situation right now that everybody's trying to focus on in Poland. All those train stations are quite overwhelmed and there's people waiting for their final destination. What are you trying to get to? And from all my friends I have on social media, everybody was rushed to help. Like all I've seen, it's all about like trying to find a shelter or try to find somebody, a hospital, all those kind of posts on social media. That's all I've been seeing lately. I am very happy. It makes me proud of my a country that we've been so, so helpful to Ukrainians. So do you two have plans to return then? Yeah, yes, absolutely. You saw the need firsthand. How are the best, what's the best way for average Americans to help? The best way is to go to ukrainianrefugeerescue.com and uh, donate there or sign up to volunteer, either remotely or on the ground there. And you can volunteer in Poland or in Ukraine, uh, whatever you're more comfortable with. But that's ukrainianrefugeerescue.com. Well, we really appreciate you willing to share. I know um, you probably came away feeling very heavy in some ways, inspired in other ways. So thanks for talking through it all with us. Thank you for having us and telling the stories. All right, well, and going from a crisis that's happening across the globe to something that's happening a little bit closer to home, we are now talking about uh, election changes, I wouldn't say reform, that are happening uh, in, in some counties around Nevada. Isn't that right, Jacob? That's right. Uh, across the country, but especially here in Nevada, there have been attempts at the county level to uh, reshape the way that election administration laws are uh, actually written. And that's things like how voting machines are set up, uh, how clerks actually count ballots. And specifically in Nye County, the county commission there recommended that the county clerk switch from voting machines to hand counting all paper ballots. Yeah, and there was also a big uh, <laughs> there was also a big meeting here at the, in Washoe County. Uh, I think it was one of the largest turnouts of public uh, people coming to talk about either in their support or against the proposed change that was here in in, in Washoe. That did not pass. Um, and you and Sean talked more about that, right? That's right. Sean has been on this story from day one, and I've been helping a little bit here and there. And I sat down with him to chat about exactly what's going on here. All right, Sean. So you were watching the meeting of the Washoe County Commissioners where they were discussing some pretty sweeping election changes for the actual process of the 2022 elections. But before we get into those specifics, I'm curious about one thing, Sean. How long did public comment last at that meeting? 
you know, it's hard to say exactly. They took a 45 minute break somewhere. They took another 15 minute break later. But I think the meeting started around 10 a.m. And I think by the time public comment was over and public comment began pretty early in the meeting, by the time it was over, it was around 5 p.m. So I'd say six to seven hours of public comment. All right. So let's get into that. We talk about the issue. What is on offer here? What, what are the Washoe County commissioners uh, trying to do here? What, what are some of them trying to do here? Yeah. So, well, specifically one Washoe County commissioner, Republican Jean Herm, she introduced, as you said, a sweeping election proposal back in February that included changes basically just all up and down the electoral process in the county from moving to almost all paper ballots to requiring accounting be done by hand. There was a proposal to station members of the Nevada National Guard at polling locations. There was a a provision that would have made voter registrations expire every five years. And so this was a very controversial resolution introduced by Commissioner Herman. There were a lot of voting rights groups, progressive advocacy groups, the ACLU of Nevada that came out against this proposal said, it's it's a form of voter suppression or it's it's basically rolling back access to voting after a little bit of a snafu where the Washoe County District Attorney said that it hadn't gone through the proper review process to end up on the agenda it was taken off the agenda a February meeting of the commissioners and it was brought back after it went through the the proper process and Herman brought it forward again I and mean, it was heard at the the commissioners March 22nd meeting I want to get into the context for how we got to this proposal in the first place, but I want to ask first, it's not just Washoe County, right? Where else are county commissioners taking a look at the way that elections are run at that county level? Really across rural Nevada, this is happening. Going back all the way to August and September, Lander County commissioners attempted to audit their own Dominion voting machines. They were basically stopped by state and federal election officials who said, you can't take this information out of the machines. It has to be preserved for a certain amount of time. But at the same time, lander commissioners were looking at switching to paper ballots. And more recently, just a week before this Washoe County meeting, the Nye County commissioners asked their clerk to consider administering this year's primary and general elections via paper ballots and hand counting all of those ballots. So I want to dig into that. Paper ballots, hand counting ballots. What is the impetus for these proposals in the first place? Why are these suggestions a solution to whatever problems these Republican lawmakers say exist? Well, really, these these all go back to, to the 2020 election and Republican claims of fraud in the 2020 election, specifically from former President Donald Trump, denounced Dominion voting machines and these conspiracy theories that the 2020 election was rife with fraud, which have been unfounded in Nevada, our own Secretary of State, through a pretty extensive review, debunked claims of widespread fraud in the 2020 election. But with all of these these widespread conspiracy theories, it seems that Dominion voting systems, which is a, a national supplier of electronic voting machines, they've pretty much become a, a boogeyman of sorts, with, with many people claiming their systems are, are unsafe they're hackable, they're easily accessible, and, and really susceptible to fraud. Dominion is is fighting these claims itself. It's filed defamation lawsuits against Newsmax, against Fox News, I believe, and, and a few other organizations. So, you know, it really comes down to there's really a widespread belief among a lot of Republican voters that Dominion voting machines are, are not safe. And those Dominion voting machines in the 2020 election were used in 
all Nevada counties except for Carson City. I want to pivot a little bit to the actual execution of these policies because there's been some concerns raised from the clerk's side that switching to paper ballots, switching to hand counting is a serious ask. And I'm curious what we've heard from those clerks about what this process might actually look like. So Nye County Clerk Sandra Merlino, she she laid out that this is not going to be something that she can feasibly implement in time for the primary election. She was a little more open in terms of the general election with a little more time to implement it. But we at this point are less than three months out from Nevada's June primary election. And as Merlino said, she's already ordered paper ballots. And already, you know, even before these proposals are coming to light, election clerks in Nevada are under a lot of pressure. They have a responsibility to run basically full elections through mail balloting, but also through in-person balloting because they don't know who might show up at at in-person locations on election day or who might take their mail ballot and fill it out and and submit it. And so really just with the the resources that local election officials have, it's very difficult to to implement these changes, especially just in in such a short time frame to make the change. Not to mention that the, the prospect of hand counting is one that is is very resource intensive, even in Nye County, which is is much smaller than Washoe County and Clark County. It's still Nevada's third largest county, but several thousand voters there in hand counting all of those ballots takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of people. I mean, it's a difficult thing to pull off in a, in a small amount of time when voters are expecting election results. And what one county does and the amount of time they take to determine their results affects the entire state. So when we talk about election administration in Nevada, a big part of that conversation now has to do with legal changes that happened from the legislature in 2020 and then again in in 2021. How are those laws being implemented? And are the sort of expansion of mail voting, for instance, having an effect on these kinds of conversations that we're having about election administration right now? It's made it very difficult for them. You talk about the expansion of mail-in voting in 2021, AB 321 permanently expanded mail-in voting in Nevada so that all registered voters receive a mail ballot for each election unless they, they decide to opt out of mail voting. But earlier this year, I spoke with several election clerks across Nevada, and you know they told me that this is, has really ramped up just the amount of work that they have to do. It makes elections a very intensive process because like I said they're running these these sort of full-on elections both through mail balloting but also through in-person voting that's a difficult process to handle when they haven't really been allocated they've they've gotten more resources in, in terms of money but there's only so many election workers that they have it's, it's a lot of responsibility for them to take on another difficult thing Merlino has spoken out against this in Nye County is same day registration that adds just Another difficult task on Election Day of having to register people right there and then give them a ballot to vote in person when they haven't previously been registered. So you're not necessarily expecting to to be counting or processing that vote. Okay, Sean. So getting back to Washoe County, where where we started this conversation, how did the commission react to this proposal after all that public comment, after all those delays with the district attorney? How did the commission react? So the the final vote was four to one. And this is even with a Washoe County Commission where there are three Republicans and and two Democrats. So very clear that the two Democrats were going to come out in opposition to to this resolution. But two Republicans on the commission joined them in in denying the resolution. 
And they were basically saying that this was too extensive of a resolution. Maybe there are pieces of it that they could support, but this kind of sweeping change was not something that they could get behind, especially in such a small amount of time. Commissioners Bob Lucy and Vaughn Hartung, they're the two Republicans who joined Democrats in, in denying this. And there are some things where, where they said we're open to, to future conversations. It seems like they want to take a, a longer look at how the voter rolls are cleaned. But ultimately, this resolution was shot down. And with less than three months to go until the, the primary election in June, there's really not much time to make changes in time for that election. So if these proposals do arise again in Washoe County, they very well might only happen for the general election this year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Lydia Karasinska, John Staub, Jackie Valley, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, and Sean Galanka for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Vendels, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, best outfit to wear when you have to throw a surprise birthday party for your friend's pet hamster that they drunkenly bought on St. Patrick's Day, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme songs from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joe. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.